All right, we're in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. My college years were some of my favorite times of life. Uh, I was a Bible major. I was at Pensacola in a time when uh, Jim Shetler had just become pastor. There was a real spirit of revival on campus. That was amazing. And I had some really good friends. And so my daughter would later go to my alma mater, and I'd say, Brianna, what was, you know, what's it like? She said, well, Dad, you know, it's, it's good. It's just, I don't know, I don't have a lot of the same kind of friends. Now, granted, she's a, you know, she's a graphic design major, so that may play into it. But um, we talked about, where, where are the kids who are really gung-ho for God? And I said, yeah, you know, it's interesting. The, the day in which you live really does um, jade or affect your view of what's happening in college. It's not just your professors. It's not just what you're being taught. And I thought back to my time frame. I have so many good friends in ministry. 1987, I traveled with Dr. Comfort, and that was the, he was trying to do internships back then to, to keep from starting a Bible college. He didn't want this to happen. And uh, so he'd take guys like Mike Pelletier and me and others with him and and hope that would appease the Lord, you know. And when it didn't work out well with Pelletier and me, the Lord said, no, you need a college. This is not working. So, <laughs> so anyway, all kidding aside, I, I had traveled with uh, five other guys that summer, one of whom was Greg Bryant, my dear friend who's now with the Lord. And, and Greg had been at Franklin Road Baptist, where uh, Dr. Comfort was a member back then in Tennessee. And Greg and I were really close friends. We came home from that college trip, and the Lord impressed on our heart to start a college team. Brother Comfort said, look, Larry Brubaker and I had a college team, and I'd encourage you guys to start one. So we did. We started one my junior year, and we traveled every weekend somewhere in the, in the Gulf Coast preaching. In fact, John Thompson was on our team, and John, Greg Rickard just gave me a recording of our years traveling together, and uh, you guys sounded good. He was part of a quartet. And so we traveled all over, and it was so much fun. Great experience. Man, I'll tell you what. I started my junior year and preached every weekend until I graduated. And so my friend Greg Bryant would later be in my wedding. A really close friend, Tim Zacharias, who's now um, assistant pastor at Campus Church. He pastored in, in Connecticut for a while. I'm naming these people because these were college friends who today are still gung-ho for God. Um, one of my dear friends, Dave Gamble, Brother Spencer knows, and uh, he pastors at Shenandoah Baptist in Cleveland, Tennessee. And I've told this story here, but one day I was a floor leader in our school, and I had to make sure quiet hours were enforced. So I hear this bellowing down the hall, and I go into this room. It's the prayer room. And I thought, oh, somebody's listening to preaching tape a little loud. And I walk in. It's my friend Dave Gamble. He's on his knees. Oh, God, please work in my roommates. Please work in my... And he's going through a list of people... Now I have to tell Dave Gamble that um, God is not deaf and it's quiet hours. So, <laughs> Dave, uh, listen, brother, I don't know if you remember, but it's, it's quiet hours. And I'm sorry, but it is my job to remind you that everybody needs to have quiet to study. Oh, Rich, I'm sorry, brother. And I said, no, that's okay. Just remember, God can hear your thoughts. So if you don't mind, just, it's like, no problem. But I walked out of that room saying, if a guy can pray like that, I want that guy as my friend. And we have been friends ever since then. And so I'm comparing these experiences with my daughter, and, and she has some good friends. She's got some pastor's daughter friends of hers that are still lifelong friends. And, but she said, you know, Dad, you and Mom talk about all these incredible connections you had in college, and I, I don't know, I just, we just didn't have that much. And I thought about this. You know, it all comes down to the individual decision of students, and there's a passage in Scripture to which we're giving our attention today. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're looking at verses 1 through 8. And really it begs the question, the question here is the title for the message today. To you, is he precious? 
To you is he precious. You know why Brother Reem had us go back and repeat that one stanza? We're singing about the love of Christ that no one ever loved like that. And he, as a song leader, is thinking, my job is not just to get people in sync here and have us stay on key. It's to think about the message. And, And I wonder how many times have you sung a hymn and you think about the preciousness of Jesus Christ. Precious, it's a word we throw around, you know, some, and especially grandparents. Used to be they'd carry pictures in their wallet. Now they just carry their smartphone. Have you seen my grandchildren? Well, you may not have, but you're gonna. And uh, they, they'll start, and they'll say things like, oh, isn't she precious? Well, you better agree, because that's their grandchild, right? You get married, and uh, you, ever, you ever watch girls when they get engaged? <sighs> I sometimes wonder, do they like the ring more than the guy? You know, it's like... <laughs> Have you seen? Okay, but it's made out of precious metal. You know why, why rings are typically made out of gold? It's, it's, it's precious. Why is gold precious? Well, you, it's not like pebbles scattered on the street. You have to go mine it out. You've got to dig it out. It's valuable. And the reason a girl's enamored with the engagement ring is because it represents a relationship. So the question is this morning to you, is he precious? Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, I don't always do it. Why don't we stand? I think this would be a very pertinent passage for us to stand. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 8. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and all and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that she may grow thereby. If so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming unto as a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also as lively stones are built up a a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, it's also contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, run to also they were appointed. All right, you may be seated. Thanks for standing with me. Notice three times our English word precious appears in this passage. So let me break this down into two areas if you want to follow along easy notes. First of all, begotten of God as babes in Christ. Okay, we're begotten of God as babes in Christ. What does begotten mean? You know, so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. What does begotten mean? Anybody want to give me an idea? What's, what's a simple explanation. Yeah, to father them, okay. Gave birth to, all right. So we're begotten of God. Go back to chapter one for a minute. Look at verse three, chapter one. Let's get some context. Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath, notice this expression, begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Brother Beale mentioned that, you know, that gospel song Wounded for me had the whole gospel in it. That's one of the reasons I love Wilbur Chapman's hymn, One Day. It's got the whole gospel in it, right? And uh, not that every gospel song, every hymn has to have the whole gospel, but, you know, some of them should. And that one's got the whole gospel. Well, notice he's, it mentions the hope of the resurrection, but that is the basis for us being begotten again. What's another way of saying begotten again? Born again, yeah. In fact, go down to verse number 13. Verse, uh, I think it's 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
uh, verse 18. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation, your empty lifestyle, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the, notice that word shows up again, the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. One more, look at verse 23, being born again, same expression, begotten again, born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Okay, now we go to chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 in our text is where we see this begotten of God as babes in Christ. Wherefore, laying aside all malice, all guile, hypocrisies, envies, all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if so be you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. Okay, so in the first three verses of chapter 2, we see... In context, we're begotten of God as babes in Christ. I grew up going to church when I was a kid. I went to a Methodist church. It was not a, was not a Bible preaching church, but we never missed. We went every Sunday. My parents had been raised Methodist. We were, um, I was born, uh, born and raised in a town called Sewell, New Jersey. My dad was from the town of Pittman. My mom was from Mantua. The town in the middle was Sewell, so they got married and moved to the middle. My dad's town, Pittman, was named after a, a circuit-riding preacher, an old firebrand Methodist, Charles Pittman. And he would travel all over southern New Jersey, where I grew up, and he, he was a firebrand. Pittman was an old camp meeting town. They used to bring them by train out from Philadelphia, and they built a place called The Grove, where they'd have summer camp meeting there. It was, it was an old town of, of true preaching. In fact, the, the hymn, In the Garden, was written in Pittman, New Jersey. Uh, so a lot of history there, but I was at the Pittman United Methodist Church as a kid, and it was a flaming bastion of liberalism. So I didn't hear the gospel. And um, when I was, oh, I guess 10 years old, we visited a Bible-preaching church for the first time. My dad's co-worker, Will Guth, had led my father to Christ at the Mobile Oil Company in Paulsboro, New Jersey, and he told my dad how to be saved, and dad got saved at the workplace. And then he thought, why isn't my church telling me this? So I remember the first time I ever heard the gospel, we went to Open Bible Baptist Church in Williamstown, New Jersey. It was the only time I'd attend there till later preaching there uh, as an evangelist. But I went there on a Sunday. They had about 1,000 people. The auditorium was set up like this. We sat up about halfway back. Pastor Riddell got up there, and he's preaching the gospel. And I, we'd never heard preaching like that. And that afternoon, my dad came into my room, and he had his Bible, and he, he walked me through John chapter 3. He said, Richie, you know what you heard in church today? That's a message that everybody needs to hear. He said, son, have you ever sinned? And I knew I'd sinned. And he said, do you know what sin is? And yes, sir, can you give me some sins that you know you're guilty of? Lying, talking back to you and mom, using bad words. I'd, even, I'd use God's name like a cuss word. I mean, I, I was 10, but I knew I was a sinner. It's funny, though, I, until that day, I never thought about my sins as being sin against God. He said, here's the problem, son. You, the Bible tells us your iniquities, sins, have separated between you and your God. So where does God live, Rich? Heaven. So if you die separated from God, where can you not go, Rich? Heaven. So where would you go? I, I didn't want to say it. I pointed down when he said, Rich, there is a place called hell. And if you die separated from God, you can't go to heaven. I said, Dad, I don't want to go there. He said, well, I don't want you to go there. But thankfully, God doesn't want you to go there either. He said, do you know what God did so you wouldn't have to go there, Rich? And it's like the lights came on. Jesus died on the cross. And then he rose again. We started talking about it. My dad walked me through John chapter 3. And here he is, Jesus, talking to Nicodemus. And dad said, look, Nicodemus was one of the most religious people of the day. I found out later he was the chief teacher of the Sanhedrin. 
And he said, uh, this renowned teacher comes to Jesus and said, you know, you must be from God. Nobody could do the miracles you're doing. And Jesus goes right to the core truth. He says, Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus scratches his head and says, how how can a man be born when he's old? (laughs) Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. And then he goes on to the most familiar verse in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Isn't it amazing? In John chapter 3, you have the terms born again and saved in the same context. Jesus coined the phrase born again. Born again means saved. What is saved? Saved is not just going to church. Saved is not, I'm Baptist. Saved is not, I went to Sunday school. Saved is being born of the Spirit with life from above. And you've got to be born again in order for you know, to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. If, you don't, if you've not experienced the new birth, you don't know Him, and you're not headed to heaven one day. It's not your heritage that will get you to heaven. It's only His Highness, the Lord Jesus Christ, who can get you to heaven. You must be born again. Interesting, after my dad talked to me, I trusted Christ that day. He went to my sister's room. I'm hoping to go see her tomorrow. She lives up in Mooresville, North Carolina. And he went to her room and he said, Laura, I want to talk to you about what Rich just heard. And he went through the plan of salvation with her. She didn't understand it all, but she knew whatever just happened in my room made my dad really happy. So she wanted to make dad happy. She went through the words she didn't understand. She prayed a prayer, didn't get saved, and didn't realize until she was in college with me, we're both in a Christian college, she realizes one day hearing a message on reaching your lost loved ones that she doesn't know the Lord herself. And she gets saved in a Christian college and then realizes, no wonder reading the Bible's been a drudgery to me all these years. No wonder trying to do right's been nothing but, you know, pure effort. There wasn't a heart for God because she didn't know God. Begotten again unto a lively hope. Let me give you a couple of subpoints with this. We're, we're made anew, okay? So that's what I've just been walking through. We are made anew. That's in chapter 1. We mentioned verse 3, verse 18, verse 23. Chapter 2, verses uh, 1 through 3. We're made anew. John, 2 Corinthians five seventeen. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. One of the reasons I was motivated this year to study the epistles of John is because he says, if we say that we know him and we keep not his commandments, we're liars. The truth's not in us. Now, we're not saved by our works. Indeed, we're not saved by works, but we are saved unto good works. And if you're saved, somebody takes up residence in your life. And who is the person that takes up residence in your life? Yeah, you say, well, the Holy Spirit. The what spirit? The Holy Spirit. And if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. So we have, we're made anew, but then we're meant to crave nourishment. We're meant to crave nourishment. Notice verse 1 says, wherefore laying aside, and he tells us to detox. There's some things we need to get out of our system. Okay, so heave aside unbecoming actions. Lay aside. It's like a person unlading, unburdening a ship that's become uh, overwhelmed with water intake, and we gotta, we got to get some stuff out of here, bail it out, get s- some of the extra weight out, because we don't want to sink. All right, heave aside, lay aside what? Well, he mentions uh, malice, for one. What's malice? That's um, hatred, 
a desire to injure somebody. And then he says, lay aside guile. That's deception. Okay, that's deceitfulness. It's actually a term used for fish bait. Uh, also, hypocrisies. That's the putting on of a mask. You remember in, in ancient um, theatrics and drama, they would just change masks to portray a different character. So we're good at that in church. You know, okay, it's Wednesday night. You've got to put on our prayer meeting mask, okay? Okay, go to youth group. Put on our youth group mask. And then we're with our friends that uh, don't go to church with us or maybe go to church but don't care. Then we have a different mask. That's hypocrisies. That's acting one way in one setting and a different way in another setting. And um, Brother Harper was asking me yesterday about a, a preacher I know. And he said, I've, I've not met the man, but he said, I've heard this and this really good about him. And, is, and you know him pretty well. Is that true? I said, absolutely. The man is the same in the pulpit as he is in person, as he is whether playing golf or just going out to eat together. The same. He said, I'm so glad to hear that. You know, my dad taught me a long time ago, be authentic. Be real. No hypocrisy. Put aside pretense. Just be the real deal. You, you know, if you're real all the time, you, then you don't have to worry about what people find out about you. You're just authentic all the time. No hypocrisies. And then envies. That's the word for jealousy. Jealousies. And then evil speaking. Evil speaking is defamation. That's when you seek to, to injure somebody by what you say. The Lord says, stop all that. Put that aside, okay? So, but then he says in verse 2, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Okay, how many of you have ever worked in church nursery? Anybody ever work in church nursery? Okay. I'm looking. Okay, mostly girls. I might have seen one guy. My wife keeps telling me, you need to work in the nursery one day. I said, it's kind of hard when I'm doing the preaching. Well, you preachers just need to work. You need to work in kids' class. I get it, because they're like, how long is he going to preach, you know? These children do not care about the Spirit of God moving in the service. I understand that, okay? If you've ever worked in the nursery, you can, you can understand this. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word, the word desire is to crave. It is to long for. It is a desire that will not be, des to, uh, be denied. It's a baby who's dependent on its nursing mother and it's time to eat and mom's not around and that baby is not happy. Have you ever noticed that a body this big can put out some volume that, you know, Bose sound system would love to rival the cries of a baby? Unbelievable. When a baby is crying, you can't like, okay, we'll get to it. You cannot ignore the cries of a desperate baby. That's the idea of desire the sincere milk of the word. How many people that you know just long for their personal quiet time, long to have their devotions? I preached about that yesterday. Oh, I, I found a great quote, and I thought, i got to give this to you. I, I'd, I'd forgotten to mention it in the message. It was from Hudson Taylor, and he's, uh, let's see, I wrote it down to make sure I didn't forget it. He said, uh, do not have your concert first and then tune your instruments afterward. Yeah, those of you who are musicians would understand that. Do not have your concert first and then tune your instruments afterward. He said, begin the day with the word of God and prayer and get first of all in harmony with God. That's really good. Do not have your concert first and then tune your instrument afterward. Begin the day with the word of God and prayer and get first of all in harmony with God. That's good. My prayer time is usually late at night. I mean, I, I'm the second shift kind of guy, so it's not unusual for me to have my prayer time at 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of beginning my day with prayer before I go to bed. Um, so somebody's got to work the second shift. I'm glad there are some emergency room doctors and others, you know, that are, that are night people. Uh, that's kind of my shift, but, but, you know, some of you, 
early mornings your time. I usually read something in the Bible to kind of get my heart in tune with God. The priority has got to be making time. Well, I don't have time. What if you approach your time management the way you uh, approach giving? Do, do, have you learned to give even when you can't afford to give? I can't afford to tithe. You can't afford not to tithe. Okay, well, I'm so busy in school, I don't have time for my devotions. I don't have time for prayer. No, you've got to make time for prayer. It's amazing how your mind will sharpen, how your skills will improve if you'll make the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is your time with God. So look at verse 3. If so be, you've tasted the Lord is gracious. That, that brought to mind Hebrews, um, sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Matthew 5, 6 is blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, that's verse 3. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, 6 is blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. How about Psalm 34, 8? Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see. Notice there are they're tangible experiences. Uh, Psalm 42.1, as the heart, the little ibex, as the heart panteth after the water broke, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. Have you ever felt the hunger for God in your heart? I was in college with a, uh, a guy named Dave. I was a freshman. Dave was a, was a senior. Tremendous orator. This guy could preach a message like we'd have student body, and sometimes there'd be just a devotional in student body. But he'd take five to seven minutes, and he could give you three points and a poem and an illustration and be like, amazing. I was just marveling at this guy. name was uh, Dave Moyer. And I remember we got to our senior year. Dave and another guy in our school had set up a tent. They rented a property and and wanted to do an old-fashioned tent meeting. You know, nobody knew them in the community, so it wasn't largely attended, but they were getting some cool experience. And I remember I went because I wanted to hear Dave preach. Well, right before we, before we graduated, Dave, uh, Dave got in some trouble with the school. I didn't know at the time what was going on. And he graduated, but he wasn't allowed to march across the platform. There was something going on. I, I didn't know back then. Later, I heard that he had gone back to his home state, and when he got home, he had backslidden, well, at least in my estimation for what I was putting together, he had backslidden very badly. He had some brothers who were not saved. They were going out to the bars drinking. It was not good. I thought, what happened? This guy that I really looked up to. So a couple of years later, I was traveling with a college ensemble group. I was the preacher for the group, and we're in a church, and I heard that Dave was in the congregation that day. And I looked back, sure enough, he's there. And he's in a suit and tie, and I thought, Okay, this isn't fitting the whole narrative I heard. So I talked to the pastor about him. I said, is that Dave Moyer? He said, yeah, that's him. I said, I heard this and this. He said, yeah, that's true. He said, you need to go talk to him. Okay. So I went to him after the service. I said, Dave, tell me what, here's what I heard. Was it true? I don't want to misrepresent you. He said, no, it's all true, Rich. He said, you know, I came home from college. He said, I'd had my little fallout with the college because of money I owed. and all. They, they were right. I was wrong. And, 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 uh, but I left mad. And he said, I got bitter. He said, so I started going out, and he said, I, I was in the bars drinking. He said, one night the, uh, principal, the pastor, rather, of the Christian school that I attended, he was not my pastor, but the pastor of the school that I had attended, came into the bar. He said, I'm in there, I got my whole, I got my hair growing out, I got this big beard, I'm trying, I'm trying to hide my identity. And he walks up and taps me on the shoulder, and I looked at him, Pastor, what are you doing here? He said, Dave, I'm here for you, what are you doing here? Come outside, I want to talk to you. And he went outside. He said, Dave, you don't belong in a place like this. Dave hung his head. 
He said, Dave, I want you to come back to church. He said, Pastor, I, if I come back to church, the walls are going to fall down, you know? He said, Dave, I want you to come back. Oh, Pastor, I'm not making any promise. He said, Dave, I'm praying for you. Well, not the next Sunday, but two weeks later, Dave showed up at church, and he said, the pastor told me, dressed up, got coat and tie on, you know, but he looked miserable. The pastor gave the invitation. Dave was the first one down the aisle. Pastor met him. He said, Dave, I'm so glad you've come to get right with God. He said, Pastor, I haven't come to get right with God. He said, what? He said, I've come to get saved. He said, Dave, you understand, you, you can't lose your salvation if you've been saved. He said, Pastor, I never was saved, and I knew it all along. I said, Dave, could you explain this to me? He said, Rich, I never cracked open a Bible except to get material to prepare a message to impress people. I wasn't interested in the Bible. I was just interested in people's approval. And he said, but now I know the Lord, and I love the Bible. I said, Dave, are you going to be a preacher? He said, I don't know, Rich. He said, I don't know if I'm called to preach. All I know is I love the Lord, and I love the Word, and I'll just do whatever he wants. Wow. You ever hear somebody say you can fool some of the people some of the time? But you can fool God none of the time. To you, is he precious? It's interesting. I read an excerpt this morning that I'd set aside from Jim Berg in the book Essential Virtues, Marks of the Christ-Centered Life. Listen to this paragraph. Jim Berg said, Nothing erodes progress toward godliness more than today's entertainment mindset and the modern church's casual Christianity. Devotion to Christ, which characterizes the godly man, is cultivated not with a game console in hand by the hour, but by gradually increased time spent with a Bible in hand. It does not grow by, uh, it does not grow by hours a week spent before a television, computer, or a theater screen, but by more and more understanding of the person, work, and ways of Jesus Christ through increased time spent in His Word. The Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself, Psalm 4, verse 3, and the godly man thrives on his personal time with God. You know, it's so well said, I say it all the time because I heard it as a kid, but before God works through a man, he first works in a man. Before God works through a man, he first works in a man. What opportunity are you giving God to work in your life? It's not just in the classroom where the Bible is the topic of the classroom. That's important. We need to be well taught. You guys are being taken through the whole Bible as you're here. What an awesome opportunity. But I want to tell you, an academic approach to the Bible will not change your life. There's got to be a devotional meeting with God every day. So we are begotten of God as babes in Christ, made anew, meant to crave nourishment. But then I want you to move on to verses 4 to 8. And the second area I want you to see is we're built up by God as a sanctuary of stone. So begotten of God as babes in Christ, but built up by God as a sanctuary of stone. Pick up in verse 4. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed, which means rejected, shunned, pushed aside, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, you also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore, it's contained in Scripture, uh, in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he's precious, but to them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. Now, let me pause there for a minute. Notice Christ, the rock of ages, is our foundation. So, in this connection, Christ, rock of ages, is our foundation. And that's in verse 4, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. Notice all verse 4, he's the living stone. 
Verse 6, he is the chief cornerstone. Verse 7, he's the stone which the builders disallowed. Verse 8, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Our faith is built on the person of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite passages in the New Testament is um, Matthew 16, where Jesus takes the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. And on the rock of the gods, it's called, is engraven pictures of Baal, um, uh, Pan, named uh, the, the god of uh, Pan means all. So Pan was the one who played the Pan pipes, half goat, half human. Uh, Caesar, they're all carved in the rock. At the bottom of it is, the, is called the Gate to Hades. It's a cave out of which flow the waters that form the, the head of the Jordan River. And I no self-respecting Jew would go to this place. It was like the Las Vegas of its day. If you heard Jesus took the disciples to Las Vegas, if he'd lived in America, you'd think, why would Jesus go to Vegas? Okay, that's what Jewish establishment would have thought. Why would he go to the Rock of the Gods? It was a pagan place. He stands in front of him. He says, whom do men say that I am? They say, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say Elias. Some say Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And then he gives the all-important question, whom say ye that I am? And I wrote in the margin of my Bible, that is the most important question for any individual or any church. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? Well, you get that wrong. You do not have an Orthodox church. You get that wrong. You don't have eternal life. Whom do you say that I am? Peter doesn't miss a beat. He says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Okay, and it's the first, uh, first mention of the word church in the New Testament. He says, you're Peter, thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Okay, Peter is Petros. This rock, Petra, there's a slight difference. Petra would be like that granite cliff. Petras, Peter, is like the piece that broke off the cliff, a piece derived from the cliff. It wasn't Peter that was the foundation of the church. It's Peter's statement, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. That, that confessional is the bedrock of our faith. And he says, uh, you know, he is that rock. Oh, and interesting, he says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell. And I imagine him pointing to the very cave called the Gates of Hades. That's where they believe, the, the Greeks believe their gods came out every spring to cohabit with humans. He says, I'll build my church right in the presence of the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What a picture. He's the living stone. But then, not only is Christ the living stone, he's the foundation, but then Christians are the stones making up the sanctuary of faith. Christians are the stones making up the sanctuary of faith. Notice verse 5, you're lively stones. Um, verse 6, he says, it's contained in Scripture, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. Okay, so he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. So you'd have a cornerstone, but then other stones are connected with it. That's how you build a building. Jesus didn't build the church by himself. He's the cornerstone, but he uses you. Look at verse uh, 7. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he's precious, but to them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, run through, they are also appointed. Christians are the stones that make up the sanctuary of faith. Now, interesting, we are no inanimate granite. We're living stones, lively stones, okay? The church is not just some edifice. The church is not a building. It's people. When I was a kid, we did the little thing, you know, here's the church, Here's the steeple. Open the door. See all the people. Okay, let me, let me set the record straight here. This is not the church. This would be the church. The people. Okay? The, the building is not what makes the church. The people are who comprise the church. And it is a local assembly. 
It is to be a local assembly of born-again, baptized believers who've united under common doctrine. That's the point of a church. That's the reason for a local church. That is the work through, uh, that is the agency, the organiz- organism through which God does his work, a local church. That's why it's so important to be connected with a church. Okay, so he has given them this admonition. Look, I'm the living stone. You're the lively stones. And then Peter makes this observation. To you that believe, he's precious. Now, I want to focus on that. It's mentioned in verse 4, chosen of God and precious. I circled that in my Bible. In verse 6, elect precious, speaking of Jesus. And in verse 7, precious. A couple different Greek words used, but the idea is valuable, highly esteemed, not easily obtained. Okay, think of the word precious. Precious metal, precious grandchildren. I've got to tell you, in your culture, your minds are probably going to Tolkien. J.R.R. Tolkien. I remember I was in uh, Peru years ago. My brother-in-law, Steve Pace, was not my brother-in-law at the time. His parents served for 50-plus years in, in Lima, Peru. And Tom Pace just passed away last month and went to be with the Lord. But um, Steve grew up in Lima, and I was traveling as an international representative for my college, and I went to Peru one year. And I'm getting shown around the Pace complex there where they lived, and they're calling these dogs, and Bjorn, Frodo. I'd never heard these names before. I said, what are, what are these Swedish names? What are these names? They said The Hobbit. You never heard of The Hobbit? No. Lord of the Rings? No. Well, they'd all read. They're missionary kids, you know, so they've all read through the whole series. This is before uh, Peter Jackson came out with his famous series of it. And so I'm hearing all these names, and I thought, okay, I probably should learn something about this. And I remember later reading some of that, and then Jackson came out with the famous Lord of the Rings, and and uh, there, is, there is definitely a cultural reference I need to make here because there is a flawed character that any of you who are familiar with the series know, known as Gollum. And Gollum is known by his obsession with something called the Ring of Power. And the Ring of Power, this crazy character, informally known as Smeagol, became obsessed with obtaining the Ring of Power. He doesn't know it's one ring to control the world. All he knows is when he puts it on, it makes the wearer vanish. And he talks to it. It's kind of like some girls with their engagement rings, you know? And so, <laughs> so beautiful. he speaks to it all the time. And do and you know how he refers to it? My precious. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> My precious. And the reason he called it precious was because he's obsessed with it. You know, I know some people that are obsessed with their social media account. I know some people that are obsessed with a boyfriend or girlfriend. That's kind of understandable. How many people do you know that are obsessed with Jesus Christ? I was thinking of this. You know, I wrote wrote in my notes a little reminder to self. uh, When you sing hymns, do do you think about the one of of whom you sing? Oh, how I love the Savior's name. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. I love you, Lord. More love to thee, O Christ. When you sing these songs, do you think about the one to whom you sing? How about this? When you read the Bible, do you do it out of duty or delight? Or maybe not at all. How about when you sing hymns? Do you sing hymns with any thought of the one to whom you're singing? Hey, by the way, do you ever sing in private to the Lord? 
got a very dear friend in New Jersey, our friend Betty Griffin. I mention her often. We've been friends forever. My mom and, her, and she were friends. Their mothers were friends. Their mo- we span five generations. Our kids are friends. And uh, they are our dearest friends in New Jersey. And Betty Griffin has a habit. Every day she has a song for the day. She wakes up, and let's say it's He Keeps Me Singing. And she'll be singing it during her quiet time. And later on, she'll be peeling potatoes, and she'll be whistling the song. And later on, I'll hear her humming the song. And one day I said to her, Betty, you've been on that same song all day. She said, Rich, don't you know, every day God gives me a hymn for the day. And I sing it, and I hum it. That is speaking to yourself in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. How many people do you know do that? Are you obsessed with Jesus Christ? Many of you know the name William Wilberforce. He, of course, led the abolition movement in um, England. I love to give out the, the gospel tract, Amazing Grace. And when I give it to a clerk, I'll say, you've heard the song Amazing Grace. Everybody's heard that at funerals. Oh, yeah. So this is the story of how it was written. And just in a nutshell, the guy who wrote the song was formerly a, a slave ship captain named John Newton. And he used to traffic in humans, human beings. He's a human trafficker, slave trader. And then he came to a time of desperate illness and came to repentance and faith, and he trusted God. He asked God to be merciful to him. He became pastor to a man named William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was renowned in the British Parliament for leading the fight along with William Pitt to abolish slavery. In the late 1700s, there was this battle to abolish slavery. But listen to this. William Wilberforce wrote a book with a really long title, the abbreviated title, called Real Real Christianity. But he was talking about his concern of his countrymen who claimed to be Christians, and he said, take such people aside at an opportune moment and lead the conversation to the matter of religion. The most that can be done is to get, uh, to get them to talk in general terms about religion. They appear lost in generalizations. There's nothing specific nor determinate. There's nothing to suggest a mind that is used to contemplating spiritual realities Vainly you strive to bring, around, uh, bring them around to speak on this topic. One would expect the subject of God to be uppermost in the hearts of redeemed humanity. But they elude your endeavors. If you make mention of it yourself, they don't give it a cordial welcome. Indeed, they greet it with disgust. At best, the discussion remains forced and formal. You know, we don't write that way today, but you think about that. You can probably relate. You ever try to talk to your classmates or your dorm mates about spiritual things? Well, yeah, we have prayer group. Yeah, we're in a Christian college. I asked my daughter about that. They had prayer group like I did. She said, yeah, but, you know, it's sad. It just depends on who leads the prayer group. But she said, so many kids are just there because they had to be there. And this is, this is true across the board. You know, this is just a reflection of what's going on in our families, okay? I'm not saying this to reflect on our institutions. You can have all the sound doctrine in the world, but if you don't have people that generate and, and, and uh, what is the word, germinate a heart for God, you can't force it. My coach, uh, Holy Ham, he's down at International Baptist in Spartanburg, and I've mentioned him often, had great impact on my life. One day he said to me, hey, hey, bud, come here. I said, yeah, coach. He said, I found out today we're in God's book of remembrance. I said, what's God's book of remembrance? Malachi 3.16, brother. Malachi 3.16, he opens it up. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name. He said, Rich, every time you and I talk about Jesus, brother, he says, oh, I like that. He writes it down in his book of remembrance. 
He said, I wonder how many times we get written up in that book of remembrance. He said, that's one book I want to get written up in, brother. That's good, isn't it? Do you have friends that provoke you to talk about love, to a love for the Lord, provoke you to love and good works? Do you have friends that, you say, I wish I did. How about you be that friend? The friend who's obsessed with Jesus Christ. We had a preacher when I was in college. He gave a, a message that was revolutionary. He was preaching on Colossians 1.18, that in all things he might have the preeminence. He said, students, let me ask you, and he was a very eloquent preacher. He said, let me ask you, do you give Jesus Christ a place in your life? He said, of course, all of you would say, yes, pray tell, you're in a Christian college. Why would you be here if you didn't give Christ a place in your life? He said, I want to ask you this. Is he prominent in your life? Prominent means up at the top of your priorities. He said, you know, he's not asking for a mere place. And he's not asking for prominence. He demands preeminence. Do you know what preeminence means? That means he is at the forefront of everything and everyone in your life. Is he preeminent? Heard the story of a pastor who was about to retire in England. He had been in the ministry for decades. And he was well known in the community. People respected him. So for his retirement, they brought in folks from all over to honor the man and one of the people they brought in was an actor. He was a theatrical performer. In fact, he was known for playing Shakespearean roles, quite an eloquent person. And they asked him if he would honor the reverend by giving a recitation of Psalm 23. So this renowned actor stood before everyone and with command, he recited, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He went through, it was a beautiful oration, the way he articulated, the way he emphasized the points. When he finished, there was a thunderous applause. People stood and gave him an ovation. And somebody said, why don't we have the pastor come and recite Psalm 23? And he didn't want to do that. You know, but, oh, no, bring so-and-so. He'd spoken it so many times at funerals and had preached on it over the years. So now the frail pastor was brought before the people. He didn't have much strength in his voice. But he didn't even need to crack open the Bible. He began to recite it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He went through all six verses. When he finished, there was not a dry eye among the people. Somebody standing close to the Shakespearean actor turned to him and said, you know, I don't get it. You stood and with such command you recited that, and yes, the people gave you an ovation. But this minister, frail of speech and not very impressive in his appearance, he moved the house to tears. How do you account for that? The actor said, I think I know. He said, you see, I, I know the song but he knows the shepherd. Hmm. To you that believe, he's precious. Let me ask you, is that true? Let's stand together with our heads bowed. Father, one of my burdens for our, our colleges and for ambassador, I pray for this all the time is that we might have a genuine spiritual revival among our students. 
I, I'm not concerned about the doctrine of this school. I'm grateful for it. I'm, I'm, I'm not largely concerned about the uh, teachers at this school. I don't know everybody, but from what I know, people brought in here, they are sound. They, they love you. It's not like there's one of these battles going on between modernism and, and um, fundamentalism. It's, it's not those things. It's what you said to the church in Ephesus. You know, you don't tolerate those who are false teachers. I mean, you've endured. But then you said, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. Thou hast left thy first love. And you told them it was such a serious transgression that if they didn't repent, you'd remove their candlestick. They would cease to be a church. They had had uh, Timothy as their pastor, Paul as their founder, John as their pastor, as far as we know. What a, what a lineup of preachers. But your beef with them was that they, they left their first love. Would you please do a work among us to give us a heart for you?